Hey everyone, this is your friendly lockdown recruiter Anais with another episode of The Curious Recruiter. Now in the last two episodes, we spoke about job offers and more specifically salary negotiations. Those two episodes were actually a great hit among listeners, so thank you to everyone who tuned in and thank you to all of you guys who got in touch afterwards to ask additional questions. Many of you actually reached out to get some more insights into a topic I discussed only briefly, and that's equity-based remuneration, aka stock compensation, aka shares. So given the heightened interest in that topic, and more specifically the mechanics of all different types of shares, I figured I'd just stay on the topic of compensation to record a dedicated episode. So if you're ready to jump into the world of equity-based compensation with me, and also endure a crap load of references to Wall Street movies along the way, then you've definitely come to the right place. So what are we going to discuss today? First, I want to tell you a little bit about why stock compensation is becoming more and more common as an integral part of an employee's compensation. There's actually a good reason to it and it's worth diving a little bit deeper into. Then I'd like to equip you with some equity jargon so I can effectively take you through some of the most common stock types which companies might be able to offer you. And that's stock options, stock appreciation rates, employee stock purchase plans, and last but not least, RSUs. We're then going to close off on an important distinction, and that's the distinction between stock issued by public companies and the stock that's issued by private companies. So let's go. <clears throat> and of course, it wouldn't be a curious recruiter episode if it wasn't for a quick disclaimer. So in this episode, I am not trying to tell you which type of equity compensation is best. I'm just trying to give you the full overview of what are the most common types of equity, what to consider, and I'll try to list the pros and cons in order to dumb it down for you. I'll do that so that you recruiters out there can talk about valuing stock compensation better and so that you job seekers out there know how to talk equity compensation with your future employer. With this in mind, some of the equity types I'll mention might sound less attractive in the way I'm describing them, but again, it all depends on the circumstances and of course on the company that issues the stock. So take my words with a grain of salt and some relativity. Also, I'm not a tax expert. Oh my god, definitely not a tax expert. But I do know that there are specific tax implications related to each and every type of equity compensation and of course, to make matters more complicated, they vary from country to country and, you know, take into consideration a lot of things such as your personal family situation, whatever it is. So taxation is a very specific and complex variable. So where this topic is concerned, I've actually chosen to leave uh, the tax component out entirely and we're just going to talk about the pure stock component. All right, so now that all the disclaiming has been done accordingly, let's jump into the first part of this podcast, and that is why are more and more companies these days rewarding in stock? I read this article a while back that said that Microsoft employs more millionaire secretaries than any other company in the world. They took stock options over Christmas bonuses. It was a good move. So stock compensation has become a more and more popular way for companies to reward employees because it's a way that doesn't involve paying out cold hard cash. Both public and private companies offer equity compensation to their employees for a whole lot of reasons. 
By the way, you heard that right, both public and private companies. We'll actually talk about this in depth later, as private stock and public stock are actually two very different things. Anyhow, there's a bunch of reasons, as I said, why stock-based compensation is actually a good thing for companies. One of the benefits is that it can be used as an incentive for employees to be more motivated and invested in the financial future of the company. In other words, that means that employees will work harder and drive the stock price up for their own benefit, which of course is also a benefit for the company. It's a win-win, right? And another strategic upside of equity compensation is that it can minimize employee turnover with the right vesting schedule. Now hear me out. Stock compensation is often subject to a vesting period before it can be collected and sold by an employee. This can be anything from three months to one year to even four or five years. And that's also called the vesting schedule. We'll talk more about this later. But with this vesting schedule in place, employees are technically encouraged to stay in their positions for that period of time. Because if they leave the company before that period of time is over, they won't see any of that stock. In other words, they won't actually touch that money that they're being promised. Last but not least, one of the more common reasons is that offering non-cash compensation allows companies to bluntly save cash, and that will help them to continue to grow by investing that cash into new projects. So stock compensation is often used by startup companies because those startup companies typically don't have the cash on hand to pay employees competitive rates. So obviously everything is being shifted to stock. On a more tragic note, I actually want to warn you here that offers which are exceptionally high in stock may indicate a company that is hurting and that's just looking to lure you into a role without having to pay you any actual money. That's why you have to make sure that the amount of equity that you're receiving is actually appropriate for your position. You should know that, as I mentioned earlier, the stock part of your compensation is an integral part of your salary and not just a bonus. Therefore, the higher you climb in the corporate ladder, the more likely it is that your compensation will be heavier in stock than it is in cash. At some point in companies like, for example, Amazon, the base salary is actually capped and any extra performance rewards or salary raises are done in stock. So just to give you a very broad indication, in most tech companies, at least that's what I know, entry-level positions will have about 10-20% to 20 of their salary paid out in stock, and C-level employees might actually have up to 50% of their compensation paid out in stock, if not more. So you might want to ask yourself, what are the advantages and disadvantages of stock compensation for you as an employee? So the main advantage of stock-based compensation for you as an employee is that there is this dimension of ownership, which I called out earlier. You feel like you're in some ways a partial owner of the company, probably along with 10,000s of other people, to be fair. But the moment you see their share price increase, that's when the company is publicly listed, of course. It just makes you want to work even harder. At a certain point, your stock might be valued at far more than your full salary could have ever provided you. So there's an uplift there for you. And for those who need more than just the ideological warm and fuzzies of being a part of the company and helping it achieve, it's important to mention that stock-based compensation means additional earnings. Because as the stock price increases, it will drive your compensation upwards that's called capital gains, we'll get to that in a second, and therefore that will make your total compensation substantially more attractive. 
As for the disadvantages, I'd say that there are pretty few disadvantages to having a stock-based compensation. That is, unless, say, more than 50% of your compensation is actually stock, then it would be different. But if you're just a regular run-of-the-mill employee up to, I don't know, manager level, um, then I guess it's a pretty good deal. Uh, stock-based compensation is usually pretty risk-free. That is, as long as you know what you're getting. Are you getting public or private stock? How's the company doing? How have they been doing so far? What's on the roadmap for them? What kind of stock is it that you're getting? What kind of vesting schedule? The only main disadvantage that I can see is that it's just but a complicated topic at first. And once you see through it by asking yourself all these questions, you can get a much better understanding of how risky or actually not at all an equity offer from a company maybe. Right, so stay tuned obviously, cause I will try to dive a little bit deeper into answering some of those questions along with you. So without further ado, let's cover what you need to know about any stock component in your compensation and what types there are. But first of all, we need a teeny tiny vocabulary lesson. Oh, I'm, I'm good with water for now though, thank you. It's his first day on Wall Street, give him time. So there are a couple of words that I've actually already used earlier, but I want to spend some time to tell you what they are, what they mean, uh, in order for you to better understand what we're going to be talking about. And those words are vesting, exercising, capital gains, and fair market value. So vesting is a term that describes the date or the event when shares that are given to you become available to be exercised. Now the verb exercising simply means selling a share. So when you're exercising a vested share, you are essentially, and very simply put, selling the share, or in other words, you're just exercising your right to sell the share that you own. Now fair market value is a complicated sounding word for stock value, and that's just literally the price of the stock today at this point in time. And last but not least, capital gains is all the money you make when you exercise a share whose fair market value exceeds the value at which it was granted. Again, this is a very simplified representation, but if you were given a share that was $100, and two years later you sell it for its fair market value of $150 because the stock price grew, your capital gains would be $50. That's easy peasy, right? So for our first type of stock-based compensation, we will start with stock options because they are the most talked about type of equity compensation. Actually, when I first started working in the stock compensated world and I heard the word stock option, knowing absolutely nothing about it, I thought to myself, well, this sounds great. It has the word stock in it and the word option and it sounds very stock markety. I've heard this on the big short and on Wall Street and whatnot. Must be great, right? Well, let's have a look. So stock options essentially offer the right to purchase shares of the company's stocks at a predetermined price, which is also being referred to as the exercise price or in a cooler fashion, the strike price. Usually this option is limited in time. So in other words, there is an expiration, but exercising the shares, AKA purchasing them is often only possible following a predetermined waiting period called the vesting period or the vesting schedule. So most vesting periods span over the course of three to five years and they can vest either all at once or according to a specific schedule. Once the options have vested, you've basically earned the right to your shares, though you still need to exercise them. And as we discussed earlier, exercising means purchasing them. 
So let me give you an example, because to that point, you might not be quite clear on what a stock option means and requires. So imagine that as an employee, you're given the ability to purchase 40 shares at $100 a share. Now the options vest 25% yearly over the course of four years. That basically means that every year over four years, you have the right to purchase 10 shares because a quarter of 40 is 10. Now don't worry, you won't lose out on your options if you don't buy those shares in the same year that they vest. They will just add up to the other ones that will vest next year. But now let's imagine that after your first year with the company, you decide to exercise your right to your first 10 stock options, and therefore you will pay 1000 US dollars for 10 shares. Remember, the strike price is at $100 each share, and that is regardless of the fair market value stock price. So again, to make it clear, you want to buy your 10 shares, it's $100 a share, you pay 1000 US dollars. Now here's the beauty of things. If by the time you decide to exercise, the stock's fair market value is anything higher than your strike price of $100, you're basically making profit, aka capital gains. Let's say, again, for the sake of this example, that the moment you exercise, the fair market value is at $150, then you just bought yourself stock that's worth $1,500, but effectively you only paid $1,000. So technically, if you want it, the next day you could sell those shares at the fair market value, which is $1,500, and get yourself the $500 profit, because again, you only paid $1,000. Right? So if there's only two key takeaways you need to note from this segment about stock options, then it's that stock options are not actual shares. You got it by now, I'm sure. You understood that it's just an option to buy stock. You are not actually given shares. You're simply given the right or the option to purchase them. The cool thing is that you can buy them at a preferential price, aka the strike price, and that is the price that is set and fixed in time. And you'll also see the uplift that we spoke about, which means that any shares you acquired will ultimately and hopefully give you capital gains as the share price rises. However, you do need to take into consideration that you will have to cash out money in order to become a share owner. So that's one thing you definitely have to think about when you're trying to value a stock offer that's been made to you. So now that we've covered stock options, it will be way easier to understand SARs, aka stock appreciation rights. It's a much less common type of equity compensation component, but it makes sense to still talk through it. So remember how with the stock options, you had to cash out money in order to exercise the share. And then as demonstrated by the example, you could actually benefit from capital gains. Well, imagine that you could benefit from that capital gain only and that this gain would be paid out to you in cash and you wouldn't need to cash out money to pay for the share at its strike price. So in essence, stock appreciation rights is very simply put, when an employer tells you you are entitled to X amount of shares, at a given strike price, and according to vesting schedule, you can hit the proverbial red button and immediately cash in on the capital gains without having to buy stock. But you only cash in on the capital gains over the strike price, aka the difference between the fair market value and the stock price, or more specifically, the strike price. But wait a minute, a company could just like uh, give you the money, right? Like, I mean, an actual bonus, right? Well, no, 
because we still want the remuneration to be tied to the stock price so that the employee feels motivated enough to move the proverbial stock price needle. Okay, sounds good. I'm like down, but where's like the cash 22? Well, since you're all a bunch of cool cats, you probably understood that there is only a tiny little thing we're missing here, which could totally be neglectable depending on the case, but still, I want to call it out. You only cash in capital gains. Only capital gains. You basically don't own shares, which could in turn mature and accumulate more capital gains. So let me give you another example, because we love examples here. Your company is doing well, and during the six months after you cash those capital gains in with your SARs, the fair market value of that company stock has gone up substantially. If you'd owned shares, you probably would have waited and sold at just the right time, but with SAR, you can't play a waiting game and have to exercise during a given window, which may or may not be of advantage to you. Get it? All right, so let's move on to the employee stock purchase plan, which is also called ESPP. No offense, but this is probably the lamest of all stock compensation plans. I mean, it's actually called a plan. And what you do here is basically just choose how much you choose to contribute to your ESPP fund every month or every year. And that amount is being deducted from your payroll, aka your salary at the end of the month or at the end of the year. And at a given date, your employer will use whatever is in your employee stock purchase plan fund thing doodle do in order to buy shares. So in the end, it's all cool. You do become a stock owner, which we already established is a good thing when your company's doing well, but that discounted price at which the stock is being purchased doesn't usually have more than 50% discount applied. Oh my god, that's like so lame. Yeah, it's so lame that I don't want to spend more time talking about it because it's really not the most exciting type of uh, stock compensation. So let's move right on to the last, but by no means the least type of stock compensation that's out there. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking about RSUs, aka restricted stock units. It's actually one of the most common types. I should have started with that, but you know me, guys, I'm the boss of this podcast. And I thought that having to go through all these crappy types of stocks would be a much better way to kind of end on a high note with restricted stock units. And I can totally understand why some of you would say that its name sounds like it's also the most annoying stock type but it's, it's pretty cool. So that's right, kids. I'm going to talk you through restricted stock units and we're going to try to make RSUs great again. So yes, I agree. They're a bit complicated to look through and I can say that the word restricted sounds inviting, but the mechanism of restricted stock units is easy once you just get it. And it will be my utmost pleasure to help you understand what restricted stock units or restricted shares really are all about. First of all, you need to know that while they are restricted, and again, we'll get to that word in a second, receiving restricted stock units essentially means that you will receive company shares as a gift. Yes, for free! According to a specific vesting schedule or vesting period. All you need to do is wait. And of course, do your job. And be a good employee. And hope for the stock price to go up. But yeah, essentially, just have yourself a good cup of coffee and uh, wait. So once the stock vests, it's yours and you can do with it as you please. You can either keep it and that's usually on a stock plan account that your employer will have set up for you or you can sell it right away at its fair market value 
Although again, I am not a tax advisor, but I want to tell you that you shouldn't probably sell it too soon because of taxation rules that may apply. Um, there's a heavy, heavy taxation that applies to stock that is being sold before usually uh, the one year term, and that can go up to 50%. And yeah, you don't want to lose that on that. So um, do a little bit of research on what applies in your country and your specific situation to not uh, lose out on that. Also, one thing that is good to note is that once your stock is vested and is on that stock plan account that I just mentioned earlier, it will retain its full value. And of course, any capital gains that are uh, coming from the fact that the stock price has been growing. And even if you are no longer employed with that company, you retain full rights on those vested shares. Now that sounds pretty great, right? Okay, let's look at an example again. So imagine that with your job offer, you're given an RSU package of 40,000 US dollars and with a vesting schedule that runs over the course of four years with an equal installments. So in other words, a quarter of the sum of these $40,000 will vest every year over the course of four years. Now, if you're good at calculus, you know that a quarter of 40,000 US dollars is 10,000 US dollars. So basically 10,000 US dollars worth of shares will vest every year. Now, as you can see, I spoke about a package that was valued in a dollar amount and not in numbers of shares. That simply means that on your first day of joining this company, the company will take that amount, so those $40,000, and it will divide it by the stock's fair market value in order to figure out how much stock, aka how many shares you will actually receive. So assuming that on your first day of work, the stock is listed at $100 a share, you'll be entitled to 40,000 US dollars divided by $100, which is the price of the share. And that of course equals to 4,000 shares, right? 40,000 divided by 100, so 4,000 shares. As an aside, it is important also to mention that some employers might offer you an initial package in numbers of shares. Now that's perfectly fine, unless the day that your offer was made is still far, far, far away from your first day at the company, which is often the case in European countries, for example, where they have very heavy notice periods. In Germany, it can be up to six months. So this might be detrimental because if the share price drops between those two dates, so the dates that the offer is made and your first day, then you're effectively getting less because you're getting a fixed amount of shares whose price just dropped. I mean, the same goes the other way around. If you're being given an amount in dollars, for example, and you're only starting your new employment, say four or five, six months later, and by then the stock price was on the rise. So in this case, you're not able to benefit from this rise at all because you were given a fixed amount of shares. And no matter what's happening, whether the stock price is on the rise or not, uh, well, basically you're just getting that amount. So with that in mind, let's go back to our little example. 4,000 shares is what you're entitled to. This amount of shares, guys, is your initial package. And every year, a quarter of this initial package, that is to say 1,000 shares, will vest. Of course, according to the schedule that we just set out. All you need to do is to wither through your employment. And at every employment anniversary, you get 1,000 shares that just fall into your lap. That is called vesting. Easy peasy, right? Well, 
It's important to note that some companies have longer vesting schedules. While some companies may offer packages vesting over the course of, say, just two years, some of them might be four, some of them might be longer than four, up to six years. You know, whatever works, you know, there are so many different companies and they can essentially do whatever they want. Some companies also have what we call cliffs. That's when nothing at all vests for a period of one or sometimes even two or three years. And some companies have irregular vesting schedules. That's when the vests are not regular, so not in equal installments basically, but say for example 5% the first year, 15% the second year, 40% the third year, and 40% the fourth and last year, like the retail giant Amazon likes to do it. And here's a hint for me, that's actually to keep people from leaving before a year and three when there's big money to make. Uh, and in Amazon's case, at the time this was recorded, the stock price was about 3000 US dollars a share. So you get my drift. It's actually in your interest as an employee to stay as long as possible, because otherwise you'd be losing out on those shares that are not yet vested. So that brings about another question. What happens to your vested shares? So when your 1,000 shares vest that first year, they will be transferred to you on your stock savings plan, which is kind of like an online bank account. So usually as you join a company, they will set that stock savings plan up for you. And usually they do it with some of the bigger brokers in the industry. And um, you can just log into that account and see what has vested and what is still unvested. Now it will say you have 1000 shares and it will also show you what the value of these shares is according to FMV, so fair market value. So while you might've started with the company when it had a fair market value of $100 a share, after one year, that stock price might have been on the rise. So it might not be at $100 anymore and it might be at much more. Well, at least that's what I'm hoping for you. And the cool thing is that you know that those shares are yours and they're on this sort of savings account and that if you are in a pinch, you can just sell them for cash in less than two clicks or you can keep them there and you can of course continue to earn capital gains on them as the stock price rises. So uh, I never went back to work for Lieutenant Dan, though he did take care of my Bubba Gump money. He got me invested in some kind of fruit company and so then I got a call from him saying, we don't have to worry about money no more. And I said, that's good. One less thing. And every year, more shares vest and appear as tradable stock assets in your trading plan. And yeah, they will continue to vest for as long as you work for the company. So nothing, absolutely nothing or no one forces you to sell them. And the cool thing is that even when you leave the company, those shares are yours. But you need to know that the moment you decide to leave the company, you lose the rights to all of the stock that's unvested. So to go back to our example, that means that if you decide to leave the company after year three and before your fourth year anniversary, that means that 3000 company shares will have vested and are now yours officially to do with as you please, but you won't be eligible for the remaining 1000 shares from your RSU plan. I mean, obviously you're leaving the company, right? Cool. So we covered all the most common types of stock compensation. So thanks so much for making it that far. I know it's quite a lot of info to take on. We're not over though. And there is a very important section that I like to talk about now. And that is related to stock that you could be receiving from a private company. 
because up until now, everything I said was true about stock that's given to you by a listed public company. Things are different, however, when the stock is given to you by a private company. So continue to listen in and understand what those differences are. So as I mentioned before, you can receive stock from a private company or from a public company. And those two types of stocks are very different. First of all, you have to understand that a private company is a firm held under private ownership, which in other words means that it's not gone through an IPO, which stands for Initial Public Offering, and therefore it isn't publicly traded. Private companies may issue stock and have shareholders, but their shares do not trade on public exchanges. Now, I just want to make it clear that a private company does not equal a small, unsuccessful startup. You might be surprised that some of the very sizable companies like PwC, Deloitte, Mars, Chrysler are not actually publicly traded. And some companies like Dell or even Burger King actually went from public to being private again. So why is it exactly that some companies are not public? Well, the high costs of undertaking an IPO is one of the reasons why smaller companies choose to stay private. Also, public companies require more disclosure and have to publicly release financial statements and other filings on a regular schedule. Last but not least, another reason why companies stay private is to maintain family ownership. Many of the largest private companies today have been owned by the same families for multiple generations, and that explains why some of the companies I actually mentioned earlier are still private. So what is so different about private stock? Well, private company stock is a type of stock that's offered exclusively by a private company to its employees and investors. And that's it. What this means is that unlike public stocks, that you can trade very easily through a broker or even sometimes on your own, purchasing and selling private stock must always be approved by the issuing company. Some companies actually don't want their shares to be widely distributed. They might approve a sale in some specific instances, but oftentimes a private company would rather see you hold on to your company stock as a sign of loyalty. So to be fair, some private companies will allow you to sell shares in what we call a secondary market. However, not all private companies offer this sort of luxury. And even if they do, they may have other restrictions in place, such as right of refusal. And it's also worth mentioning that the lack of information about most private companies dissuades many investors who are reluctant to buy into a company that they know nothing about and cannot thoroughly research in public documents. In other words, this sort of stock is way less liquid. And liquidity refers to the ease at which an asset, such as stock, can be converted into cash. On the other hand, I have to say that if you're being offered private stock in a company that intends to go public, that can actually be a very lucrative deal. But you do need to make a whole lot of research on a company's viability and all of its IPO speculations. Some companies seem like a real no-brainer with a sure set IPO date, but still crashed miserably. I'll let you Google what happened during Uber's IPO, for example. And some companies, to be honest, don't ever IPO at all. So yeah, super important for you to do your research. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Last but not least, if you are in the lucky predicament of having to deal with two different offers at the same time, one from a private company and one from a public company offering you RSUs, you'll find that the amounts are often different. The private company might offer you a six-digit amount, whereas the public company might only give you a fraction of that amount in RSUs. Seems a bit like a no-brainer, 
but it's not if you dig deeper. If you are in this situation, please understand that share ownership in a private company is usually quite difficult to value because it's simply not realized stock. As a recruiter, when I look at competing offers from private companies, I often argue that the stock component is worthless for all of the aforementioned reasons. You can hardly sell it or turn it into cash until the company goes public, if it ever does. So you can hypothesize, of course, but you'll never know until you see how things play out. Again, think about the Uber IPO if you already googled it. So you always have to ask yourself if you want to go for the gamble or for the guaranteed cash in pocket that you will be receiving from the RSUs that the private company is giving you. <laughs> Number one rule of Wall Street, nobody. Okay, if you're Warren Buffett or if you're Jimmy Buffett, nobody knows if the stock is gonna go up, down, sideways, or in fucking circles, least of all stockbrokers. So whenever you're comparing two different offers from two different companies, always think about the liquidity of the stock. All right, we're closing in on that last segment of the podcast, which is about valuating private company stock. Uh, that means that we've come to the end of this podcast, which should have covered the most common cases of stock compensation. And hopefully it will have provided you with more insights as you're either trying to figure out what your stock situation is, or if you're about to accept an offer with a stock component and need more information to understand the wonderful world of stock holding. If you have any follow-up questions, comments, concerns, or additions to what was said, I'd be, of course, more than happy to hear from you. As always, feel free to get in touch via Instagram DM. I'm on at the Curious Recruiter in one word, or you can also send a message to info at thecuriousrecruiter.com, all in one word, too. And if you want to show your support, make sure to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, bump it up on the career development charts, or you can follow the LinkedIn page that we have so you won't miss any episode moving forward. All right, you curious people, I'm off preparing the next weekly podcast episode, and I'll be thrilled to have you listen into The Curious Recruiter next week as well. Bye, guys.